you that we gather under your word today and that this word is flawless. We ask now that you would humble our proud hearts, that you would strengthen our timid hearts, that you would heal our broken hearts, that we might see Jesus. Holy Spirit, do now only what you can do in transforming your church into the likeness of Jesus. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me to Genesis 12. If you haven't already, I'm reading from verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. The Lord said to Abraham, go. And quite simply, he went. The Lord said, go, and Abraham went. That's not a bad definition of discipleship. It's not a bad definition of worship. Being told by God what to do and doing as you are told. This week during our life group, one of our members, not a member of this church, but one of our members reflected in his highs and lows how he had been prompted by the Lord to do something and he had done it and he felt great about knowing this was the will of the Lord and the peace that settled on his heart when he did that. But he reflected his low was in the same week he had had this prompting from the Lord to do something and he hadn't done it and the peace had departed from him. Discerning the will of God is a perilous thing. Obeying the call of God is not a simple equation. In recent months, Mary and I have been prompted to let go of something very precious to us, a place that's held years of memories for us, but we felt it was right to let it go. And as we've done that, the peace that has settled on my heart has been profound the peace of God that comes from doing the right thing at the right time. Notice for Abraham, he didn't know where he was going. God simply said, go and I'm going to show you the place. But Abraham didn't know where he was going. He simply obeyed and left. First, he had to leave behind the familiar. The text says he had to leave behind his country his people, and his family. All that was dear to him, he had to leave it behind in obedience to the word of God. I wonder what it is that God might be asking you to leave behind this morning. What might be that God is asking for you to leave behind? The familiar, the comfortable, whatever it might be. It may not be a place. It may not be something physical, but it might be something in your life that God is asking you to leave behind. Now, Abraham means exalted father. Exalted father. And the following blessing that Yahweh bestows on Abraham gives some indication of just how high this exaltation is going to be for Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation, God says. I'm going to bless you, God says. I'm going to make your name great You will be a blessing. In fact, he says, all people on earth will be blessed through you. What? All people on earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. That's 
how exalted this man is before God. All people on earth. One of the striking things about Abraham's journey is that despite the blessing of God upon him, despite the clear instructions to go to Canaan, the land was not for him. It was promised for his offspring. In chapter 23 in Genesis, we learn that the only parcel of land that Abraham ends up owning is a small field in a place called Ephron at Machpelah, and he pays 400 shekels of silver, which is a profound amount. 400 shekels of silver, and the reason he buys that field, it has a cave at the end of it so he can bury his wife, and he himself are buried there. That's the only parcel of land he's given. A gravesite. That's what he ends up with, a gravesite in this promised land. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. This was Abraham's calling, come and die. But we get ahead of ourselves as he's only just set out in obedience to God's call. Verse 4, so Abraham went, and as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. Now there's a wee word of encouragement for you pensioners out there. 75 years, that's when it begins. There you go, Bill, 75 years. It's just the beginning. He set out for Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Sorry, verse 5. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land so far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Haran, the town that they left, literally means crossroads. And that's exactly what it is. Haran is the crossroads from the fertile soils of Mesopotamia, the people in Asia, in Asia Minor, that's the crossroads where they meet, and then there's a road that heads south down towards Egypt, and that's the road that Abraham is setting out on there. His father, Terah, and likely his brother Nahor, although it's not explicitly stated here, settled in Haran. They stayed put in Haran. So Abraham is again leaving his family. It's no small thing that God is asking him to do here. He leaves the place of crossroads and he heads towards Canaan. And he doesn't travel alone. Not only does he have his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, but there is a, a band of people with him. We learn in chapter 14, in two more chapters, that Abraham musters a posse of 318 trained men born of his household. 318 trained men in his household. So it's likely there's over a thousand people now traveling with Abraham on this journey south into Canaan. And they land at this place near Shechem, the great tree of Moreh. And here the Lord appears to Abram and he delivers the promise, to your offspring I will give this land. And Abram responds in worship by building an altar. From there, verse 8, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west 
and I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. I find the symbolism in this verse striking. He pitched his tent between Bethel on the west and I on the east, which is a way of saying that he, although he hasn't arrived, he, he, he sojourns there for a time. He sojourns there for a time. In obedience, he has journeyed to the place of God's promise, leaving behind much, and God appears to him. And now Abraham calls out to God. The relationship has moved from this one directional where God is speaking to Abraham and commanding him to go, and now it's a two-way relationship, notice. Abraham's now speaking to his Lord. He's now worshiping. He builds an altar. It's this two-way relationship that is developing between God's and Abraham. And he begins to settle in the promised land. He pitches his tent halfway between Bethel and Ai. Bethel on the west and I on the east. Why is the significance? Well, let's unpack what those two towns mean and what they symbolize. I literally means a heap of ruins. Not the best title you'd give to a town, is it? A heap of ruins. But that's what I literally means. I'm reminded of some of the, uh, the towns in New Zealand that went through this phase of having a slogan uh, to promote their towns. And there were some great slogans in the 90s and the 2000s. Hamilton's slogan was, more than you expect. More than you expect, which is fine if your expectations are fairly low for poor old Hamilton. Um, Dunedin wasn't much better. In the 2000s, our slogan was, it's all right there. It's all right there. Now, I moved to Dunedin in the 2000s. I didn't come here because of that slogan, I can assure you. It's all right here. Great. Yeah, I want to be there. Uh, but I think the one that takes the, the cake is my old town of birth, Ashburton, and their slogan was, whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes. Okay, come and live in Ashburton. Whatever it takes. I is a heap of ruins. A heap of ruins. Not much better, right? But that's not a bad description of what we now call our Western culture right now. A heap of ruins. Our culture, once dignified, once godly, has been reduced to a pile of foolish ruins. I can give you just two examples this morning to illustrate my point. Last week, an English cricketer called Ollie Robinson had his debut for England. He performed wonderfully. And then some people went trolling around in his tweets and they found three tweets that he posted when he was 18 years old and they were deemed to be homophobic and something other phobic. And he was suspended. I've seen the tweets. They are nothing. They are insignificant. It's really quite pathetic to see the way the current English cricket establishment are bowing down to the worship, to worship the gods of inclusivity and tolerance. Seriously, if you judge me by my actions and my words and my outlook of when I was 18 years old, I wouldn't be standing here this morning. A pile of ruins. Second example I give you of our Western culture turning into a pile of ruins, the New Zealand Olympic Committee inclusion policy, and I quote, those who transition from male to female are eligible to compete in the female category under the following conditions. The athlete has declared that her gender identity is female. 
The athlete must demonstrate that her total testosterone level in serum has below 10 nanomoles per litre for the last 12 months prior to her first competition. And we will now see the madness of a man performing in female weightlifting in these upcoming Olympics, a pile of ruins. Abraham chooses not to pitch his tent in I, but he pitches it close by. He pitches it close by to this pile of ruins. That's on the east, but on the west is Bethel. Bethel means, of course, house of gods. Now, it's intriguing to me that in chapter 28 in Genesis, we learn of Abraham's grandson doing the reverse journey, heading north back up to Haran, and he stops at Bethel. And if you remember the story, he lays his head down on a rock, and he has something of a dream, which what happens when you lay your head on a rock. He has a dream, and God meets him in that dream, and he names the place House of Gods. And God comes to him in that dream, and he says, and notice the change in wording, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. This is the house of God that Jacob now names. Abraham's grandson. Abraham doesn't pitch his tent in this town, but he pitches east of it. Why? Surely the man of God would want to dwell right at the center in the house of God. Pitches tent there in the center of God's habitation. Why wouldn't he? And why does he find himself pitching between I and Bethel? Well, I think the answer to that, in part, can be found and revealed in the commission that God has given to Abraham. Remember, he said, I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will bless those who bless you and significantly, I will curse those who curse you. In other words, I will stay with you, but you need to go into the world, this broken, sinful pile of ruins, and take with me, with you, my healing, judging, restoring, refining power. And 400 years that's ex later, that's exactly what happens. Abram's descendant, Joshua, comes into the promised land. And remember the story, the second town that he goes to, in the story of conquest is the town of Ai and is reduced to a pile of ruins as God's judgment falls. So Abraham's journey continues on into the south because of famine and then the troubling account of his deception around his relationship with Sarai. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So let me get this straight, Abraham. Because your wife is so beautiful, you're going to lie about her being your wife. You're going to tell the Egyptians she is your sister so that you can be treated well. And this self-preservation means that when you arrive in Egypt, Pharaoh is going to take Sarai to be his wife and presumably is forced to engage in the conjugal rites of marriage with this pagan king just so that you can be treated well. 
And as a result of this infidelity, the judgment of God is going to fall on Pharaoh. This is the man whom God is going to bless all the nations through. Look how it plays out in verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. What does this tell you about the character of Abraham? Well, it's pretty obvious to me. Abraham is a lying, devious man who was more concerned about his own welfare than that of his beautiful wife, Sarai. In other words, he is a seriously flawed, sinful man, just like me and just like you. And God says, I'm going to use you, Abraham, to bless the world. Despite your flaws, I'm going to bless the world through you. Wow. What does that say about your call? What does that say about your call this morning? Let me apply three applications from this word this morning. Firstly, let me remind you of the obedience of Abraham. Let me remind you that he was spoken the word to go by Yahweh and obedience he went. He didn't know where he was going. All he knew is that he had to leave behind the familiar, his household, his family, his place of birth. He had to leave it behind and go. And why did he do that? Because he trusted the character of God. He trusted the character of God. The word of God tells us that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was told to go, and he went. He heard the voice of God, and he went. Jesus said, my sheep, listen to my voice. John 10, Jesus said, my sheep, follow me because they know my voice. Do you know the voice of God? Do you know the voice of God when he's speaking to you? Abraham heard the word of God and in obedience he went. Secondly, Abraham pitched his tent between Bethel and Ai. Bethel on the west, the house of gods, and Ai on the right, the city of ruins, the pile of ruins. Now this is the prayer that Jesus prays in John 17. Remember the prayer in John 17? Jesus prays to his Father. He thanks God for the disciples that you have given to me, that you have saved them out of the world. You've been saved out of the world, but then he goes on to say, but they are still in the world. The prayer continues to say, you are not of the world, but you are sent back into the world. In other words, we pitch our tent somewhere between Bethel and I. We don't spend our life in the house of God. We come on a Sunday and we are filled as vessels of grace. God speaks to us. God meets us and fills us with his grace. That's what he's doing this morning. He's filling you with grace. 
that you can experience the wonder of his love. But he doesn't leave us in that place. He says, take this grace and now be agents of grace. Go into this world, this pile of ruins. Take the grace that you have tasted and experienced and minister that grace to this pile of ruins that we call the city of Dunedin or wherever it is that God takes you. We pitch our tent between the house of God and the world. And finally and thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, this text teaches you this morning that we are flawed and we are chosen and we are blessed. Abraham was flawed, a self-preserving, lying, deceiving man, and you can see that deception working out in the generations that follow, and yet he was chosen by God. You are flawed. I am flawed, but we are chosen by God. Let me describe what this choosing sounds like to the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1 verse 3, we hear the following. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Chosen in Christ. Adopted in Christ. Set apart as holy in Christ. Predestined for glory in Christ. You have been chosen despite your flaws. And you have been blessed. Abraham, Abraham was flawed. You and I are flawed, but we are chosen in Christ. Recently, I've been reading the biography of Eugene Peterson, and he's been referenced already. Carol mentioned his translation, The Message. A profound saint over the last 40 or 50 years went home two or three years ago. And as I read the biography and the incredible accomplishments that God has used and brought through Eugene, one of the striking things is the struggles and the flaws that are so evident in this man of God's. He struggled in his marriage. He struggled with alcohol. He struggled with pride, on and on, and yet God used him powerfully and wonderfully. Do you believe that your character is flawed this morning? Do you believe that your character is flawed this morning? I'm here to tell you that it is. It's been flawed by sin, but I'm here to tell you more significantly that you have been chosen in Christ. More than that, you have been chosen to be a blessing, a blessing to the world. Church, that's a wonderful and mighty calling. This is God's plan to use you and I, broken vessels, flawed vessels, so that we can extend God's plan of redemption to the city of ruins that we call the city of Dunedin. Chosen, flawed, and blessed. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, as we sit under this word this morning, We acknowledge the perfection of your word. It's flawless. And as we sit under the flawless character of your word, we can't help but reflect on the blemishes in our own lives. But Lord, we take heart this morning as we see 
this flawed character of Abraham, and yet through your grace and through the work of your transforming truth, you make us into something good. You make us into agents of grace. Lord, you don't leave us in our brokenness. You don't leave us in our flawed state. We thank you that when you choose us in Christ, you begin that deep work of sanctification that only your spirit can work. I pray that you'll continue to do that work of sanctification in each of our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'll be doing that purifying work, but we thank you and praise you that as vessels of grace, you're now calling us to be agents of grace. You're sending us out to a city that's in desperate need of your grace and truth. So Lord, we hear your call this morning to go, and like Abraham, we ask that we would be obedient, that we would surely go and take this message of grace and truth to a hurting world. For Jesus' sake we pray, and in his name, amen.